Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today we're gonna walk you through the latest edition of our Wine Club podcast. Uh, today in the studio, we have a very special guest uh, from the far-flung reaches of uh, the Okanagan, uh, from the glorious Naramata bench. Uh, yeah, maybe you wanna introduce yourself and, and tell us what you do. Yeah, of course. Uh, my name is Annalisa Simonson. I am one of the co-owners and family members that owns and operates Creek and Gully Cider. Um, we're located on the Naramata bench. We are an old school Naramata farming family that has recently turned to making cider uh, as a value added part to our business. So essentially we grow fruit for people to eat and anything that's got a blemish on it or would be rejected by the modern food market is what we turn into cider instead. Perfect. We, we like... Uh you know, minimizing our impact on, on the environment. And then also we love the idea of, I don't know, like this is something that I realized really early on that you definitely don't read in all like the winemaking books is sometimes ugly fruit makes really delicious wine. Uh, totally. <laughs> one of my favorite wines that I ever participated in the making of um, was fruit off this vineyard that was like really being heavily impacted by phylloxera. Um, it was... Like, I don't know, the vines were essentially dying and the fruit looked like super messed up, like just scraggly little bunches of grapes. The wine that came out of it was super delicious. And so this idea of doing that, you know, with apples just makes, uh, makes a ton of sense. So Yeah, totally. Uh, the beauty of fermentation is that you don't get to see what the fruit originally looked like. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like on apples specifically, which is where my area of knowledge is, it's like, you know, the more scarring you have, the smaller the fruit you have, the more kind of complexity and tannic structure that you can get from, like, the apple skins. Like, there are some really positive things that you get out of apples that we don't really want to eat. Totally. Absolutely. Um, so before I ask you a ton of questions, we, we have some wine in front of us. And so I, I'm going to introduce the first wine of the wine club. Then we'll chat a little bit about it. And then we'll, uh, we'll dive deeper, deeper into, the, uh, into the world of you know, other fermentable fruits. Awesome. I'll take a sip of it. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're really here for is, is drinking. It is uh, currently 1056. So that's a very appropriate time to, uh, to commence the drinking for the day. It is an hour later for me or yeah. earlier, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. BC time so, a little different, but yeah. that's okay. Drinking can be any time of the day. You just got to be responsible about it. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, our first wine today, the white that we have in this month's wine club is uh, from Selene. Uh, Selene is uh, run by our friend Silver Tricard, um, absolutely amazing dude, like ultra punk rock winemaker. Uh, you know, he's he's everything you would imagine. Uh, you know, a French, you know, punk to to be like. You know, overalls with no shirts on underneath. Uh, you know, covered in tattoos. The first time we went there, we walked into uh, you know an empty winery. Couldn't find anybody around, uh, other than the fact that there was the distillers blaring over like this really tiny radio. And then uh, out back, uh, you know, we we stumble upon him smoking cigarettes with his friends. You know, crushing glasses of wine uh, around a big wheel of Comte. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> it was kind of a dreamy situation, like just looking out over the vineyard behind the winery and, you know, there's like somebody like literally like breastfeeding a baby with like a glass of wine in hand kind of style. Like this is, this is true France at its finest. Uh, they're located in Beaujolais, which is just south of Burgundy, uh, arguably the most famous wine region in France. Um, Beaujolais, very recognizable, but mostly for its red wines and in particular Beaujolais Nouveau style wines. So 
really fresh, young wines, um, red wines that are designed for early consumption that are often, you know, fairly low in alcohol, low in tannin, high in fruit, uh, just meant to be slugged back. But the styles of Beaujolais that uh, Silvera makes are, are a little bit more serious and even more rare than that is this, which is Beaujolais Blanc. Um, Beaujolais Blanc is made from sometimes called Gamay Blanc, uh, but which is actually uh, Chardonnay. Um, like the rest of Burgundy, they specialize in Chardonnay, but the soil types are way different here than you'd see in um, in Burgundy proper. And so here we have a lot more granite, you have a lot more sand instead of the limestone that you see further north. So the styles of Chardonnay here tend to be a little more um, plump, a little more, I don't know, kind of rustic in style. They're, they're not so like, all about the finesse, although this is a very finessed version of this style, but they tend to be a little bit more kind of wild. Uh, and that's one of the things that I really like about them. You don't see them that often. We got basically just enough for the wine club plus a couple extra cases. Um, and so this is like a super rarity that that we're, you know, it's the first vintage we've ever gotten of this wine. Um, so it's cool to get to share it with people. Uh, you've gotten to to smell and, and taste. Uh, thoughts, thoughts, opinions? Yeah. Um... I mean, it's delicious. Uh, it has this like really beautiful kind of uh, floral and salty nose to it, uh, which I really love. Um, yeah, no, it, it's it's pretty cool. I am not the most amazing taster ever. Uh, I came okay. into this business from a farming side of things. You ask any other member of my team, and they can describe what they are tasting with a finesse that is just like astounding. Um, I kind of stick to my flaws. So anything <laughs> that just like tastes delicious, I just like to say tastes delicious. No, that's totally valid. I think that's a, that's an underrated side of tasting is just sort of like the gut reaction side of tasting being like, this is delicious. I like this. I would like to drink this. Uh, that's what this is doing for me. This is also fermented in concrete just to give everybody a heads up. So don't expect any kind of oaky Chardonnay qualities. This is all uh, fermented in, in concrete tank. So a little more, uh, again, kind of finessed, despite the fact that it's grown on granite, which to me always adds like a peppery quality to the wines. And I find that this has like a very modest version of that um, kind of like white peppery, uh, sometimes kind of like agave notes. Like I always get yeah. things grown on granite always remind me of tequila. This is like not fully in that direction, but there's definitely some of those uh, interesting sort of vegetal qualities. But in a really sort of pleasing way. Yeah. Um, and I really like how within the label of this bottle, um, they have the moon, which actually does kind of like bring out, I don't know, the idea of the concrete to me. They have it uh, on either side, either darker or lighter. Um, yeah. And I think that that's like a fun way to just kind of maybe reference uh, what they're doing, winemaking, without actually hitting anybody over the head with it. Totally. I have no Absolutely. idea if that's purposeful, but that's what that's saying to me. I'm sure. I'm sure they're doing that. He's a thoughtful guy. He's, uh, yeah. He, it's so crazy because again, I think you see somebody of his ilk like being such a punk rocker, and you're like, ah, cool. Like this guy's probably a laissez-faire kind of winemaker, but no, he is militant. He is a very, very like, very good winemaker. Like, let's nature take his course, but at the same time, is is very. Uh, I don't know, precise in the things that he does. One of the other things that I really appreciate is that like, I can't remember what percentage it is, but I think it's like 25% of his uh, of what he makes. He bottles in Magnum. Uh, and then not only that, but like of that, I think he keeps 
50% for personal consumption. All his personal consumption bottles are in Magnum. Uh, he's like, absolutely. Like, if, if I can't get through a Magnum, like, is there even a reason to be That's opening a bottle of wine? That's such a classic winemaker style of consumption. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's something, cause it, there's something so lovely about a Magnum. Um, just because the idea behind it is to share it, mm-hmm. right? People don't choose to consume a Magnum by themselves, though if they can, all the power to them. Yeah, like that is such a social thing. Uh, and to kind of have that as your winemaking ethos, mm-hmm. be cool. Totally. All right, so now that we've talked about the wine a little bit, now we can dive into the good stuff, which is chatting with you about <laughs> all the things that you do. Um, so one of the things that I want to talk about, which I think will be maybe enlightening for some of the crowd at home that is, again, maybe more familiar with grape growing than they are with um, with apple growing, uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit about um, some of the specifics of like apple growing that are maybe different than than grape growing, or you can po- point out some things and I can, you know, talk about the differences or however we want to do this. Yeah, totally. But, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I guess the very easy like first thing to think about is like uh apples and grapes grow in very different parts of the world Mm -hmm. uh sometimes they overlap but not always uh one of the kind of key characteristics that you need for apple production is you need a dormancy so you need to be in those colder regions where you do have uh yeah cold snaps in the middle of the winter so your tree can shut down have a little break and come back at it in the spring uh, Canada, great place for that. Uh, yeah, but then also like a whole other side of this is, you know, grapes do this as well. Apples do too, but you've got eating grapes. You've got fermenting grapes. You have dessert apples. You have cider making apples. We cross kind of some of those boundaries in what we make as far as cider goes, but from a farming standpoint, they are treated a little differently as well. Uh yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to think of, but I guess those are kind of some of the key differences between the two of them. We grow about 18 different apple varieties. Of those, two of them actually are just on the border between being a dessert apple and being a cider apple. Mm. Uh, and for anybody who might be curious, like the easiest way to think about this is if you take a bite of an apple and you're like, ew, that's gross, that's what you ferment. Right? Yeah. Like anything you take a bite of and you're like, oh, I would like to eat this dessert apple. Pretty simple delineation. You know, that's how we start dividing this with grapes as well. Totally. Yeah. 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 You don't want to be drink like eating like a bunch of Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. It's not ideal. It is. Uh, certainly not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your mouth is going to be dry as heck by the end of it. Um, I guess like one of my questions, because this is something that I'm unfamiliar with. Like I, I know a little bit about apples like once they're harvested, uh, you know, like I know a little bit about like apple fermentation and how that's different than, than grape fermentation. But one of the things that I'm curious about is like, um, like pests and diseases, like in, in winemaking or like in grape growing, you're always stuck with things like botrytis and like bunch rot, sour rot, um, oidium, like powdery mildew, uh, downy mildew, um, things like that. Is it the same things? Do you have to deal with different things? Uh, and like, particularly in the Okanagan, are there like specific threats in the Okanagan that you're, that you're facing? Certainly. Yeah. So there is some crossover between what pest grapes have and what pest apples have. Uh, there is another side to the kind of apple production that helps you deter some of those things though. So an apple tree is comprised of two parts. 
you have your rootstock, which determines your disease resistance as well as your sizing of your tree. And then you have your scion, which is what determines your apple variety. Uh, your scion is essentially you taking a branch from a tree that you would like to propagate and you put that onto your rootstock. So you can deal with some of those problems by very strategically choosing your rootstock. Uh, so things that are grown in, say, I don't know, Victoria or on the coast are going to have a much different rootstock than what is grown in the Okanagan Valley. And that is really great. Uh, we do have pilder, sorry, powdery mildew uh, as well. The difference is that an apple tree kind of has a bit more resilience mm -hmm. than a vine. Uh, and you can think of that just because, well, A, they're a bit bigger, but your fruit isn't uh, as easily uh, messed with, I guess. We have a thicker skin to apples, totally. so there's just like a little bit more of a barrier between what's happening on the tree and what's happening with the fruit. Um, yeah, we also have, yeah, pests that go throughout the orchards. A huge one in the Okanagan is controlled by the sterile insect release program, and that is the coddling moth. Uh, hmm. Coddling moths burrow into the apple, and then they actually eat a little bit, but it's predominantly where they nest. And then that's where they, you know, turn into a lovely, beautiful moth and fly on out of the apple. Uh, that leaves you with a fruit that has a hole in it, though, and sometimes a fruit that has a bug in it. Uh, so that's a real problem. Great for cider making. Great for cider making. <laughs> a little bug never hurt anybody, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it would not be the first time someone has consumed uh, a caterpillar. Yeah, you should see the... Again, working in Oregon, the amount of earwigs that go into a bottle of a uh, bottle of Pinot Noir, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I feel like uh, mm -hmm. my my fear of accidentally consuming, and it's not like the bugs are making it into the bottle; they're just being steeped uh, during the. <laughs> yeah, adds extra flavor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we uh, so we uh, we grow other things other than apples. We have peaches, pears, plums, and peaches are notorious for earwigs. Oh, yeah. uh, the little well at the top of the peach is just like earwig heaven. So huh. when you're picking a peach, you have to do it very gently. You don't want to bruise the fruit. So you kind of just like tuck your hand underneath and you very lightly lift it. But as you do that, you pour a pile of earwigs onto your arm. Um, <laughs> and it is so hard to control your reaction and just like be okay with that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we have an or a certified organic farm. We've been certified for 38 years. Like, we're getting used to it. At yeah. least I'm getting used to it. I do still scream every now and then. Yeah. Depends on how many earwigs landed on me. Uh, but, yeah. So, we deal with a lot of pests. But I don't always think that we need to consider them pests. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a really healthy biome in our orchard. Lots of things that, like, people would think are negative are, say, wasps. Wasps are one of our most amazing predators. So the more wasps we can have on our property, the better. So we create environments that they're super happy with, um, despite whether or not we as pickers are happy with them. Totally. I think that's a, like a big sort of misconception that we have is that, A, we live in this like really sterile version of society uh, where it's like, you know, the amount of food cleanliness that we have you know, in some cases is obviously like quite a benefit. Uh, and in some cases can kind of be a detriment because it, it throws our whole thinking about um, environments completely off 
essentially. Like a place like, again, we're currently sitting in my apartment, which is rather clean. Uh, Not a bug about. Yeah, exactly. Not a bug about. And like this seems normal to us, but for there to be this few things living uh, is like very weird if you think of it on, on a global scale. And so... I think a lot of the things like, you know, when you walk through a forest and you get like a spider web in your face or whatever, our thing is like, ugh, it's so dirty here. Like this freaks me out. I'm like, ugh, grossed out by this. But realistically, like that's a sign that things are healthy, that, you know, like that little creature is actually a positive force for the environment. It's keeping everything kind of tied together. It has a role to play. And so for me, you know, going into the vineyards, seeing things like earwigs, seeing things like caterpillars, seeing things like birds, seeing things like, you know, whatever it happens to be. Last time we were there, there was deers, which are not good from a financial perspective, they're but there. they're they're quite cute. Uh, yes. And the family has grown. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No. They're just multiplying again off those off those good apples. Uh, yeah. You know. No, I mean, it would be an idyllic place to live. Actually, it is an idyllic place to live. I live there. It's very nice. <laughs> I, uh, I should be totally okay with sharing, and I am on many, uh, in many ways, because, yeah, the deer are very frustrating. They do eat a lot of apples. They do eat the new growth on the trees, but it, there's very few places for them to be in the Okanagan. There are very few farms left that aren't entirely fenced, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've ever seen an animal trapped inside a fence. Uh, it's pretty terrifying, and it's really hard to try yeah. to get them out. We had a moose in one of our orchards this year. Uh, Everybody risked life and limb to attempt to get this moose out of there. And we finally came to the conclusion, you know what? We're just going to leave her here. Yeah. And she left on her own a couple weeks later after having a nice little baby moose. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really, really adorable. Uh, And we almost missed that because we just thought a sterile environment is better. Yeah. But yeah, so like even us, we we have a hard time with this. Uh, every now and then, but you got to kind of like train yourself to be like, no, 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 the more robust we can make this environment, the better it is for everything involved in the environment. And we should be a part of that. Mm -hmm. I, one of the things that I noticed, uh, at the orchard was that, uh, you do have like grasses growing between the, the trees. Um, are those selected grasses or those wild grasses or those like intentional cover crops? Or is it something that you, you maintain or is that just sort of the yeah. nature of the beast. That's a wonderful yeah. question. Um, so on the orchard that you visited, those are indigenous plants. Hmm. It is also one of those things, as farmers, we like to control the plants around us. That is the idea behind large-scale commercial production. Uh, so what we are trying to do is to allow those indigenous plants, because they are growing and producing exactly what that soil needs. It's created its own ecosystem. It is regulating itself, and that's a super positive thing. So the only thing that we will attempt to control is things that can be dangerous to us. Uh, We do have a little bit of a poison ivy problem (laughs) on that property, Uh, and I'm very lucky. I have yet to get poison ivy in my lifespan, so I'm not entirely certain if I will, but my partner gets it every single year. So that is something that like we will control by either laying down cardboard and then soil on top and just reducing the light to it or we could lay down tarps as well um, and suppress it that way and we just actually hope that better beneficial weeds will come up after we are done that process totally Um, but yeah that's about the amount of control that we enact on that space Mm -hmm. other than that it really just like does itself 
Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's a positive thing. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, with one of our producers, uh, Gut Ogao, uh, their sort of realization that, that nature knows best was very much when they purchased their vineyard, which had been abandoned for, I don't remember how long now, but like between 15 and 25 years. So basically, you can't even tell that there's a vineyard there anymore. And uh, they were just like, all of a sudden realized like, cool, we turned it into a vineyard X number of years ago. And then given even the short amount of time, it went back to being what it wants to be, mm-hmm. which just shows how unbalanced that vineyard was. Uh, if it like, if it just completely turns into something that's not a vineyard after that short a period of time, obviously it wasn't a really like sustainable ecosystem to begin with. Yeah, it's and trying to find its stasis some other way. Absolutely, and so yeah, that like their goal was like, hey, what? How can we make an environment that, what like is maybe not self sustaining? That's probably the wrong word for it, but like you know, at least cohesive. Uh, so yeah, it's that was always a really interesting way of me thinking about it. Like, if we were to abandon this right now, would it continue to thrive? Uh, you know, would it continue to be this particular environment or would it turn into a different environment? And so, yeah, that's always kind of like an interesting way of thinking about sustainability and and the viability of any given farm, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And, you know, just on a kind of weather standpoint, we are in the Okanagan Valley. It is a semi-desert. We have things that have been happening like a heat dome. And the more weeds that we have, the better... Uh, water retention we have Mm. I don't know if people are aware of this but you know there are a lot of conventional growers throughout the Okanagan Valley you walk into one of their orchards and it just feels hot and dry yeah I have not walked into our orchard in a long time and felt hot and dry those weeds just hold so much moisture inside them and they keep it in the ground and I think that this is one of Um, a plethora of solutions that we can use to start reducing the amount of kind of water wastage that we have in uh, our farming practices. Yeah, this is something we talk about all the time because a lot of the wine regions that we work with are these sort of more arid zones, whether that be California, whether that be South Africa. Um, This idea of you know, all the old school farmers are like, no, we need to not have cover crops because they're going to compete for that water. Like, those weeds are going to take water away from the vine when realistically what they're doing is they're preventing evaporation. Not only that, but like in their bodies themselves, they're holding on to moisture, which then increases sort of like the, the moisture around it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not only that, but it's like a huge cooling factor for the roots. And I think a lot of people think that, um, it's the temperature above ground that matters the most for things like photosynthesis for things like actual ripening. But the roots are sending so many signals to the actual, exactly. uh, you know, to the rest of the plant that trigger all these things. Like the, the triggering for ripening is not happening in the grape. The trigger is happening like underground essentially in a lot of different ways. And so keeping those roots cool via cover crops is like proving to be invaluable. But all these old school farmers that learned in like, you know, the 60s, 70s, and then passed that information on, um, there was just this sort of like, I don't know, like, I guess like anecdotal thinking where they're like, oh, this makes sense. Like if you rip out the, these like crop crops, then they're not competing for water, which like 
again, if you just say it out loud, like kind of makes sense. But then when you actually dive into it, you're like, no, it, it actually doesn't. It makes no sense. So yeah. yeah. To, and especially in the Okanagan and like, I don't want to, you know, knock anybody in the Okanagan, but like compared to a lot of climates in the world, it is a pretty convenient place to grow organically. Like compared to like Champagne, for instance, it where is. it is so freaking wet uh, and so cold and it's like, you know, like it's just your chances of like rot and mildew are just so high that, you know, the, the, the biggest challenges in the Okanagan, like again, like water stress, um, obviously this year, things like leaf hoppers, mm-hmm. you know, smoke, which we'll talk about in a very short period of time here. Uh, you know, it's like, it seems like a really nice place to grow organically. So to, to see so many growers so hesitant to do it uh you know I really hope that that changes slowly and surely here me too uh, it's actually pretty astounding I uh, I recently became um a board member for the BC Fruit Growers Association uh which is yeah the the BC lobbying board for anybody who has the tree fruit essentially for the provincial government and I've been learning a lot of statistics and facts throughout my time there And one of the things that I have learned is that while California has increased its organic production about 25% over the past 10 years, um, BC has increased 4%. So, you know, organics is something really close and personal to my heart. We were the very first certified uh, farm in Naramata. But it's just like, um, somehow doesn't seem to be catching on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... I get that there are some things associated with that. Sometimes that means that you might have a lower crop yield. Uh, Farmers are having a really hard time making money as is these days with the price of land. I don't want to shame any farmer for choosing the production method that they choose. But there should be incentives. There should be conversations about why aren't we choosing that and what could we change to help people move in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's the thing, too, is that we can't just, like, yeah, we can't just demand these things of people like that. You know, it's their livelihood at stake. Uh, you know, they're the ones with the lands. They're the one on the ground. But at the same time, obviously, uh, you know, you, your money speaks. So where you spend your money, if it's if it's mostly on organic products, then that is immediately sending feedback to the people on the ground, totally. being like, "Hey, we value this thing, and I know it's going to be hard, but we think you should do it." Uh, and we're willing to like pay you for it essentially, because that's the thing is like, I don't think that it should just be them being altruistic. It should be like, they should, you know, we should incentivize them. Uh, you know, it should be, it shouldn't be harder to be organic. Totally. Uh, But it is, it's more expensive. You have Mm -hmm. to farm organically for three years as you're in your transition phase. And throughout that entire time you sell at conventional prices. Yeah. Uh, if we take apples, for example, it costs, say, 12 cents a pound to produce apples yeah. uh, for dessert apples. And it costs 35 cents a pound to produce organic apples. So that's a huge loss you are taking every single year for three years straight in order to make that changeover. Yeah. I honestly don't know how to do that without um, yeah, some, some program in totally. order to incentivize it because... I don't know any farmers that can afford that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Well, okay, so we're going to move on to our next wine here before okay. we get too ranty, because there's going to be plenty more oh, ranting. I can rant forever. Yeah. Um, so next, we're, we're going to actually taste a wine from, from the Okanagan, uh, which is quite exciting. Uh, it'll give us plenty to talk about for sure. Uh, this is a Sunday in August Pinot Gris, um, a wine that we look forward to getting every year, every t- single time we get it. It sells out almost instantaneously. Uh, everybody gets kind of goes bonkers for it. It was one of the first sort of Okanagan natural wines that I discovered on a trip uh, probably close to five years ago um, when essentially after writing off the Okanagan for the first five years of my wine career, uh, not writing it off necessarily, but thinking that there was nothing progressive happening in the Okanagan. There's people making great wines. You know, I've always been a huge fan of Tantalus, for instance. Um, You know, at that point, uh, you know, drinking quite a bit of wine from the Okanagan, but like it wasn't necessarily wines that I thought were pushing the boundaries. Um, you know, the farming wasn't as, as interesting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I was like, cool. I wonder if there are any young winemakers out there, uh, anybody that's trying to start their own project in this landscape really dominated by, you know, hedge fund managers and, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies and things like that going in and buying, you know, flashy wineries that they can, you know, show off to their friends or whatever. So I went and, you know, I met a ton of really cool people that were just starting off. We met, uh, Costa and Jody from Rigor and Whimsy. We met, uh, Tyler and Jordan, uh, from at that point, not even called Lightning Rock, didn't even have a name yet. Uh, but they had just started kind of on their solo wine adventure. Um, we met, uh, the crew from Bella, we met, oh gosh, I can't even remember. It was so long ago. Um, but one of the standout wines that I had was a Sunday in August Pinot Gris. And it was essentially the second vintage ever of this wine, uh, made by our, our friend Mike. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, you know, we reached out to him, started forming this relationship with him and we've become, you know, really good friends over the course of the last five years. And so to be able to represent this wine, that was sort of one of the, uh, impetuses for us like getting excited about Okanagan wine and, and what the future of Okanagan wine looks like uh, this was definitely it when we think of regions that have comparable climates to the Okanagan one of the places that I think of is sort of like the northern sort of um, you know foothills of uh, of Italy where it gets super hot uh, for a very short period of time and, uh, and you think of the wines that are made there and it's things like, yeah, skin contact, white wines, um, these fresh styles of red, uh, you know, you, you even look at some of the international grape varieties planted up there, Cabernet Franc being one of them. It all kind of makes sense. There, there's a lot of crossovers. So to do a skin fermented Pinot Gris, uh, which is what we have in the, in the glass today, uh, it just made a ton of sense to me. And it was just such a playful style and, uh, everything about it just sort of spoke to me. Um, anyways, it varies drastically from vintage to vintage. Every vintage seems like it's its own little adventure. Uh, this year is 75% Pinot Gris, 25% Gewürztraminer in the Okanagan. Uh, only 75% of the wine in the bottle has to be of a particular grape variety in order for you to call it that grape variety. So a lot of those, uh, you know, big bombastic Pinot Noirs that everybody seems to be a a fan of are actually only 75% Pinot Noir and the rest of it is like... Syrah, probably, to try and make it more flavorful, trying to help out some of those uh, anemic Pinot Noirs with a little, uh, you know, juicy boy, uh, you know, Shiraz from down south. 
Um, anyways, yeah, this is Pinot Gris fermented on skins for just a couple of days. Um, I think, uh, yeah, five days this year on skins. Last year, it was like three days, six days, and nine days all blended together. This year, straight up, just five days on skins, semi-carbonic maceration. So, um, you know, not exposing it to a ton of oxygen, trying to emphasize fruit and stuff. Um, but you'll notice a key uh, factor in this is definitely a little bit of smokiness. Um, so this is something that's interesting to talk about. It's like going to be the nature of Okanagan wine for the foreseeable future. Uh, and A, like, is it a thing that affects apples? And B, uh, have you participated in any of the conversations on how to mitigate smoke taint without having to rely on like really heavy manipulations like RO, uh, reverse osmosis or uh, like charcoal filtering or, or things like that. Um, totally. Yeah. yeah. So this is something that um, we talk about a lot in the Okanagan. Um, I exist in a bubble of winemakers and this is a huge problem. We have places that are choosing not even to release a 2021 vintage because mm-hmm. of smoke taint and uh, I'm sure you guys are aware, but that is a heavy financial choice to be making. We are really lucky with apples. I have never noticed it. Mm. There's a couple factors that may change that um, or may be the cause of that. One, apples just have a much thicker skin. We already kind of talked about that. So the layers that you have to permeate to significantly change your flavor upon fermentation just more. Uh, We also happen to pick at very different times than grapes. Apples kind of exist um, in the Okanagan as early as August and can be picked as late as like mid-November. So August is usually the Okanagan's worst, smokiest time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that can totally change. We have an environment that is becoming wildly unpredictable, but that has had a little consistency to date. Uh, And yeah, we may have one to two apple varieties that we are picking at that time, but not a ton. So um, those are just like things that we haven't, haven't had to worry about quite yet. Obviously huge problem for winemakers. Uh, We as a cidery, do have grapes in some of our products. We make something called Aurora, where in which we take uh, red grape skins from one of our friends' uh, wineries each year, and we pour Golden Delicious on top, and we do skin contact. So it's very likely in that kind of skew that we produce that we would have to deal with some of these smoke taint issues. Uh, Thankfully, we have not had to yet, Um, but it's, it's in our minds and it's something that we talk about. I think that something like uh, Mike's Pinot Gris is one of the best scenarios that you can get. It's there. It's not overpowering. Mm-hmm. It participates in, like you said, playfulness of the beverage, which I think is a great way to discuss anything that Mike produces. Yeah. They're fucking fun. Totally. Um, so I think that that is probably, yeah, like one of the best things that could have been done with this wine. Um, but it, it does impact a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that are releasing lineups that are heavily smoke tainted. Yeah. And I think what we need to do as producers or sorry, as consumers is just kind of understand that 
and know how that might change our experience of the wine and how we choose to pair it, mm-hmm. how we choose to drink it. Um, yeah, and know that these places need support. Yeah. Uh, throughout this time, we have, yeah, a lot of a lot of money sunk in all of these things and a lot of time and a lot of people's positions are dependent on our ability to sell products. And so I think that uh, it's a good thing for people to like know and be able to celebrate. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see like the different sensitivities that different people have to it. Um, I noticed that my sensitivity is quite low. Uh, like I, I don't detect it nearly as strongly as like my business partner, Mark. Uh, he, he can pick it out in anything. He honestly, like every single wine that he's ever tasted from the Okanagan, he's like, this tastes smoky. Uh, he can pick it out in a blind tasting like every single time. But for me, I like, I honestly don't usually notice it until somebody mentions it. And again, I think in certain uh, situations, there's a lot more things to mask it. In this case, a little bit of Gewürztraminer goes a long way in, in mm-hmm. hiding uh, some of those smoky characteristics. Um, you know, Gewürztraminer, very famous for having lots of rose petal and lychee and almost like cinnamon clovey kind of characteristics. And that I find just sort of, you know, maybe wraps itself around some of the more, uh, you know, sinister of the smoke taint qualities. And so it makes it a little more approachable. Um, it's also interesting too, because I feel like with natural wine in particular, they just have so much more of a life cycle than your regular bottle of wine, uh, where, I've had this wine three times now, and I feel like I've had three different levels of smoke taint. Um, That's fair. I've had three different yeah. sips of it, and I'm also <laughs> uh, experiencing the same Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It is very much like a living creature. Like, I'm literally pouring myself my, like, third splash of it because I keep going back to it being like, what is going on? Um, which is kind of the fun. Like, I don't know. I, like, I still find this wine incredibly uh, crushable. Um yeah, it's fine. I feel like it has like lots of really good pairing opportunities as well too. Um, I haven't even written uh, our uh, my actual tasting notes or anything like that on this wine yet. Uh, so at some point this afternoon, that's my game plan: is actually writing the newsletter for this wine club. Uh, so I'm I'm curious to know what I come up with in the future for my wine pairings. But, yeah, totally. Uh, um, I think it's kind of an interesting thing as well because you did talk about reverse osmosis, and mm-hmm. these are things that most natural wine producers steer clear of um, for a litany of reasons. But I find that, like, yeah, you may be able to remove some of that smokiness, but you take so much more away from it Oh yeah. when you do that. Uh, and I think that for, say, tasters like you who don't find it entirely overwhelming, yeah. it can play really well within the structure of the wine. Mm-hmm. And I think you do yourself a disservice in removing it. Yeah, when we worked with um, with Tyler last year for Harvest, he was like, I'm not going to try to mitigate the smoke taint in order, like, if mitigating the smoke taint means that I'm going to potentially make a worse quality wine, uh, I'm just not going to do that. Like, because I still might end up with smoke taint, and then I'm going to have a shitty wine that also has smoke taint. Yeah. He's like, I'm just going to make the Pinot Noir the way that I know the Pinot Noir needs to be made because it is this level of ripe, um, you know, like all, all these sort of things. He's like, I know how to make Pinot Noir with this fruit. Smoke taint aside. And he's like, worst case scenario, I make a wine that's like perfect and has a ton of smoke taint to it and I can sell it off 
to one of the big guys and they're gonna be like, wow, this is really good wine. I will pay you X amount of dollars and at least I'm getting recouped a little bit of money versus if I try and mitigate it and I still end up with a wine that I don't think I can sell under my own label, uh, I'm gonna get pennies on the dollar for that wine because I've just made a shitty wine that is also you know, has smoke taint. So I'm like, that's a really good way of thinking about it. I kind of really appreciated that. Um, and then on the other side, we had a, uh, one of our winemakers reach out to us, uh, and be like, Hey, yeah, I had a wine that was like, uh, had a ton of smoke taint on it. So I decided to put it through RO and now it sucks. And so now I don't think I'm going to release it either. And I'm like, well, it seems like a lose, lose, lose situation in a lot of cases. But Yeah. And um, I mean, like, I hate to keep hitting the nail on the head, but like all of these things cost a lot of money. There totally. is somebody with a mobile uh, machine, which is pretty cool. I think that that's awesome that you can offer these services, mm-hmm. but like, it ain't cheap. Um, mm-hmm. And so those choices are all significant choices. Yeah, especially if you're like, cool, I'm going to do this process that costs money that I don't normally do to my wine. And then at the end of it, I'm going to have a wine that I'm actually going to sell for less money because it's not as good. You're like, yeah, good luck breaking even on that even. Like mm-hmm. it's just, you're just selling it to recoup some of your sunk costs at that point. And it's, yeah, it's tragic. I like again. I don't know what the solutions are. Um, obviously, they're putting a ton of research into ways of mitigating it uh, these days. But it's yeah, it's a complete gong show. Yeah, perhaps uh, the solution is make apple cider. Yeah, exactly. Pl- plant more things that can't get affected with, uh, you know, or yeah, like make other things that you know things like vermouth and stuff like that. I could feel like uh, there are a couple vermouth companies coming up in the Okanagan that are delicious. Mm, well, nice. vermouth and soda, one of the best things to consume on a hot day. Oh, absolutely. Huge fan. Uh, you know, get into the, get into the spritz game. Uh, I feel like that's a... Oh, yeah. So our solution is, like, stop making wine. Oh, that's maybe... Yeah, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be saying that. Yeah. Um, there are other solutions. Yeah. And then the other thing is that, like, I think a lot of producers are realizing that their sparkling wines haven't been affected. Um, so it's you know, that's also maybe a potential, you know, thing to do, uh, totally. is like, you know, have a huge focus on sparkling wine because of, again, when it ripens, because of the fact that you're, um, pressing the grapes really gently. Um, again, most of the smoke is in the skins or like the outer air, um, the outer layer of the fruit. Um, and so via that like really gentle pressing and the fact that it ferments to lower percentages of alcohol and has higher acidity and all these sort of things like in theory mitigate smoke. So totally. Maybe, but there are yeah. other things that you have to consider when you do that too, right? Bubble glass, much more expensive, Super expensive. than uh, still glass, more expensive to ship as well because it yeah. is much heavier. Totally. We predominantly get our bubble glass from uh, Europe. Uh, so yeah, you got to ship it over to Canada. You then have to like actually go through more processes when it's in the bottle. Yeah. You either need to like get a tank, yeah, yeah, disgorging all these things. Like these are all huge processes to work into your system that either require a lot of manpower mm-hmm. or require very expensive equipment uh, yeah. to do it. And so, totally. like, yeah, maybe you could make those changes, but I don't think those changes happen quick. No, no, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. But this is the other thing too is that like you know I think the the Okanagan is in it for the long game, and so. It's one of those things, like, again, when we're looking at what grape varieties, like, work well in the Okanagan. Yeah, we've been in the experimental phase for, like, 50 years now. Uh, You know, eventually we're going to have to be like, all right, 
certain things work and certain things don't. And, you know, in, in places around the world, it's taken hundreds of years to end up at that point. I think everything's being accelerated right now because of the joys of the internet and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I think because we're in it for the long haul in the Okanagan, these are definitely conversations that need to happen. And that if we're noticing reoccurring problems and that, you know, this isn't going away, yeah, maybe some of those long-term solutions are very expensive and, and are going to really shake up the industry. But ultimately, I want the Okanagan to continue producing really great wine. I remember five or six years ago, like they were starting to hit the international stage. And I feel like because of the last couple of vintages being really heavy, you know, smoke fire vintages, I guess not universally, and it kind of depends on where you are in the Okanagan and all these sort of things. But like, I want the Okanagan to be like a world famous wine region. And if we keep producing you know, wines that either have to be really heavily manipulated in order to, to mask smoke taint or are just released with lots of smoke taint and there are markets that are less uh, maybe accepting of those particular flavors. Again, it's, it's you know, if we're looking at long-term, we, we need to come up with some sort of solution. Don't know what that is, but yeah. we'll come up with it eventually. I think we could, I don't know, probably talk about this for, for hours because yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different ideas and possibilities. I also do kind of feel like one of the things that all of these established wine uh, areas around the world are currently doing is kind of going against the grain. Like those are the interesting producers in mm. those areas, right? I think they are starting to reevaluate what has been decided upon and why it was decided upon. Totally. So while I think that that has a lot of value and we should consider what the Okanagan kind of could be doing really well. I like that we're all doing different things. Hmm. We are experimenting with different stuff. Uh, and because we are such a young wine region, I think we get the chance to, mm -hmm. whereas when you work in these more established areas around the world, yeah, you can make other stuff, but it's quite a bit of a struggle. Yeah. You got to go against the grain. Like you got to be punk. You got to wear no shirt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So perhaps, totally. perhaps yeah. that's something to consider within this idea of where we're going. Yeah, definitely pros and cons. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're going to talk about the last wine now, uh, the wine that we do not have in front of us because uh, it's just arriving at Vine Arts as we speak. So we weren't able to snag a bottle, unfortunately. Um, but the next wine is from uh, Succe Vinicola, um, really amazing producer, uh, kind of right near Barcelona, um, in uh, Conca del Barbera, uh, this really awesome sort of up-and-coming wine region. It's a region that has, like, always been planted with grapes, as most of Europe has been, uh, always meaning, you know, at least the last 2,000 years, essentially. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of fell out of favor uh, for, for no real major reason. Um, you know, just certain areas became famous, certain areas didn't become famous. Uh, but this has all the makings of like a really famous, really spectacular wine region, um, really high elevation, quite coastal, uh, you know, lots of calcareous soil, things that people like from, uh, from a winemaking perspective, um, and then a cool indigenous grape variety. And so the variety that we have today is called Tripat. Um, Tripat is one of the uh, agreed upon varieties for making rosé cava, um, but seen as a red wine is quite rare these days. The main reason for that is that, again, we talk about this almost weekly, or I guess not weekly, monthly, uh, is this idea that during the late 90s and early 2000s, it was like the nuclear arms race of how high alcohol can we make wines, how, you know, juicy, how sweet 
how oaky can we possibly make red wines? And um, that basically destroyed a lot of indigenous grape varieties that are not particularly well suited to that style. So Trapat tends to make quite light, quite fresh wines. It's very similar to Pinot Noir or Gamay or Cinso in those ways. And so basically a lot of it was ripped out to plant Cabernet Sauvignon um, or indigenous grape varieties that do make more sort of of a hefty style or can at least. So things like uh, Tempranillo, things like Grenache or Garnacha as it would be called in, in Spain. Um, so it's really cool to see such young winemakers, like I'm pretty sure uh, they're younger than I am, which is pretty infuriating uh, that they're doing so many amazing things at such a young age. Um, but essentially they, they went to winemaking school um, and, uh, and fell in love, you know, as one does, and then moved back to their hometown and were like, yeah, we're tired of selling wine to the co-op. Uh, so like the local agricultural cooperative. So essentially a lot of farmers in the area sell off their fruit. It's all made into wine at one big sort of factory. Um, you know, generally speaking, the wines are sold off for a little bit less money. You're kind of splitting the risk between a bunch of different people. So they're definitely, again, positives and negatives to, to co-ops, but they decided that they could get way more money for the grapes if they, uh, if they just made the wine themselves. So, uh, maybe a little bit of a familiar story instead of selling fruit, you know, uh, you know, making the finished product and, and sort of reaping the benefits of those things as well. Um, and especially over the last couple of years where the big cava producers are gouging farmers to such a serious degree, uh, they're like, yeah, we're not going to sell any grapes to you guys anymore. You guys are jerks. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they started, uh, you know, making their own wine. Uh, and uh, this is a, a version of Trapat from minimum 40-year-old vines. Um, it's called uh, Cuca del Yum. Uh, again, my, my pronunciation of, uh, of Catalan words is not ideal, so apologies to any of our Catalan friends in the audience. Um, but essentially what it means is fireflies uh, because there are fireflies in this vineyard and they thought that it was just so beautiful that they had to name the wine after that. Um, so yeah, this is kind of like a brighter, fresher version of Spain, Spain known for kind of these heavy, you know, not always heavy handed, but often quite beastly, uh, beastly red wines. And so to have these sort of brighter, fresher versions is, is really exciting, especially from a climate that can absolutely do it again, being coastal, being high elevation, being planted on calcareous soils. So I think this is going to be a, a real fun one. Uh, which is a really great transition into the uh, asking you questions about this idea to transition from just selling uh, fruit to making cider. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. How did this come about? Uh, well, yeah. okay. Those are great questions. Um, and I can associate a lot with this story. I'm a little sad I don't get to try this wine. I will fix that later on today. Yeah, we'll make it happen. Knowing that it is arriving very yeah. soon. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so to give kind of a brief background about my family, we have been in the Naramata region for five generations. We have been farming predominantly true fruits for that entire time. And yeah, so we have a lot of history with tree fruits. Something has been happening within that world kind of within the last five years where, you know, we're consolidating buyers so at this point in the Canadian food market, we have about five main purchasers of fruit and or groceries uh, in Canada. 
right? Like we have many grocery store chains, but they are owned by five conglomerates. And so you have five people that are making all of the choices for, you know, the hundreds and thousands of people that want to eat a fruit every day. Um, yeah, so there's some choices that have been made. Uh, and when you have a perishable food item, you don't have a whole heck of a lot uh, to stand on, right? You offer something to your grocery store chain. They say they will buy it for a certain price. And, you know, they can get cheaper fruit coming from the United States. We are right next to another amazing apple-growing part of the world, uh, which is heavily subsidized. And so some of those apples come in, and they can use that as a bargaining chip. And they'll say, like, you know what? I'm going to purchase United States apples instead. And you're stuck sitting on your fruit going, oh, dear, what do I do now? Uh, and, you know, the longer they wait, the lower you're willing to go in your prices. Mm -hmm. um, and so this has affected a lot of growers. We have been a little luckier because we are certified and have been for so long. We have a bit more of a buffer. We have a bit more control um, and we have just like a more active consumer, but we're still affected. And so one of the things that kind of did this the most for me is I think in 2012, uh, the BC apple growers had a protest or I don't know, I don't know what the right word is for it. They started selling apples for 12 cents a pound, which is what they were getting paid for them. Um, and what they were trying to express to people is that is what it costs to produce them. And that is what, is it, what it costs to produce them if you are really, really tight on you know, staff, if you make sure that you only pay your like, people the exact minimum wage, if you don't have a tractor that breaks down that year, if you don't have any number of things that can go wrong, that is your base price just to produce fruit. And so if you are getting paid that or less, what is the viability of mm -hmm. your um, of your business, right? There has been a little bit of um, kind of leeway in this in that like land prices have been going up. So farmers have been leveraging debt against their land at a higher uh, point than they ever would have. And we're kind of reaching a breaking point where, yeah, people just can no longer continue. Can't get any more debt, can't pay off that debt, can't sell their fruit. And so me and my sister-in-law, Kaylee, who is the person that I started this business with, we're trying to figure out how do we participate in this. Neither of us are farmers. We are kind of, you know, fermenters. We originally met because we worked for the same catering company. I actually uh, trained her to take over my position, brought her to a Thanksgiving, uh, and got her a message from her a couple weeks later saying, hey, I think I'm dating your brother. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how our relationship started. So when you have two fermentation nerds living on an apple orchard and you're trying to figure out what maybe the problems with the apple industry are, uh, you drink uh, and you ferment things. And so, yeah, we started making some cider. Uh, and, yeah, we eventually went down to Washington, did a cider-making course, uh, planned the company on our way back up, and broke ground within eight months. Jeez. Yeah, I know. It's a, a little bit of a crazy story. Um, but... I don't know. I find that farmers can have a lot of momentum once you make a decision. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is something that we've, we've talked about before, but like the actual percentage of apples that you buy from yourself for making cider from versus the amount that you actually sell yeah, is like actually, super minimal. 
very minimal. You're right. Uh, so let's say it's 5%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, like 65 acres, quite a few acres in the Naramata region for sure. Um, but yeah, so it can produce over a million pounds of apples every year. Mm -hmm. And yet we get 5% of that, but keep in mind that on some years we can have damage that exceeds 50%. Yeah. There's no way with like how small year. our cidery is, like this year, yeah. um, that we can actually absorb that fruit. So we do other things with it too. We dry fruit, we make apple chips, we make apple juice, mm-hmm. we do custom crushes for people, we sell apple juice to other cideries. Like we are trying to just like reduce this number as much as humanly possible. Yeah. But I just don't know how close we're getting. Um, so yeah, it. It feels like the lesser of two evils, but we are, we are trying to make yeah. an impact as much as we feel like we can. Do you sell any, um, any fruit to uh, Alberta for like consumption? Like, do you sell oh, to yeah. any like groceries? So and- our fruit goes to a packing house. So we're not actually in charge of the sale of our fruit. Okay. So it goes to one of two certified organic packing houses in the Okanagan, which means we only have two people that we can look to to sell our fruit. Yeah. Uh, And they sell both within Canada, but around the world. Hmm. But they make all of the choices. They decide like, okay, these bins are being sold first. These bins are being sold second. I'm going to hold on to that fruit uh, and like ignore the fact that this person lowballed me or I am going to sell for that lowball offer. Like we have no control in that, which is really tough. Uh, At least the cidery offers us a level of control. So what we always make sure to do is we pay a sustainable price for that fruit that we get based off of the actual vintage inputs that go into that year. Whereas we don't have that same uh, variability with the rest of the fruit that we sell. Totally. Um, I know you were saying earlier that you've sold, uh, when we are talking at Vine Arts, that you've sold like some uh, fruit and some juice, or maybe you've just sold juice to people, maybe not directly fruit, but... Um, to like other cideries and stuff like that. Have you tasted anything made from your fruit that you've been like, oh, this is super good. Like, this is really exciting. Oh yeah, totally. It's always exciting to see your fruit in something. Um, Yeah. So that is actually a part of how we got started as well. Um, You know, it takes time to build up, uh, to build building, takes money, all of the above. Uh, So we were selling juice to other cideries at that time. And yeah, I, you know, I think that everybody makes a unique cider out of it, which is absolutely amazing because we're using the same fruit. So it's kind of cool to see definitely. the variability that can come out of it. Uh, but yeah, so that's it's definitely a thing that I have really enjoyed seeing throughout mm-hmm. the lifespan of kind of Northern Lights, which is the name of our farm uh, and our juice kind of association. Uh, confusingly, the cidery is called Creek and Gully Cider. Uh, just to mess with people. Yeah, exactly. For sure. When when did you decide on that name? I've asked, this is one of the things that people who ask me about all the time is I never know why any of our wineries are named what they are. Like I can never tell you like, oh, why is this called this? Or why is this called this? I can tell you all the technical details, <laughs> but for some reason I always forget to ask these questions. That's but, okay. Yeah. Everybody has what is important to them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So Creek and Gully Cider is kind of uh, born out of the physical location that we are in. I own this company with my family, and I don't know about your family, but we never agree on anything. 
Um, so everybody had a different idea as to what they wanted to name the cidery. Northern Light Cider was definitely an option, seeing as that was the existing name of the farm. There is a Northern Lights fruit winery. Mm. Didn't want to be confused with that. Yeah. So we started going through the different options. Um, Creek and Gully Cider was really the only thing that we could agree upon because we actually have a gully and a creek on every single property that we farm. So we were just going down with like, what can we not argue with? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the physical landscape was the answer. That makes sense. I, yeah. I, I like the name. Just putting it out there. I know that Thank doesn't uh, count for much necessarily, but uh, <laughs> I've always really enjoyed it. I like a, I don't know, good simple name. Just, yeah. You know. Unfortunately, no one knows how to spell gully. No? It's a particular, uh, I think, kind of BC physical attribute. Lots of people like hmm. think of gullies either with like G-U-L-L-E-Y, okay. uh, whereas the real spelling is G-U-L-L-Y. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like lots of people call that a ravine or they have a different mm. term for it. Gully is like this kind of like weirdly specific thing. But when you look at it, it is exactly what it is. Yeah. It's a gully. Yeah. It's yeah. like, uh, yeah, in South Africa, they have like their own words for it too, which is a kloof. Oh, uh, cool name. Which I'm like, absolutely, it's a kloof. Yeah. Like, have you seen it? It's a kloof. Uh, <laughs> so it's, I like those sort of uh, accidentally onomatopoeic uh, sort of... Uh, Totally. of things. So, uh, cool. Well, we've been chatting for like an hour now oh and we need some lunch desperately. So, uh, thank you everybody for taking the time to tune in and listening and, you know, tasting through the wines with us. Um, and thank you for coming and hanging out and chatting and giving us so much great information about, you know, the Okanagan as a whole and also about, you know, farming apples and about cider making and all these sort of things. Yeah. Well, it's always nice to chat and, you know, I hope I didn't put my foot in my mouth too much. <laughs> uh, I have a tendency not to record what I say because I say whatever is on my brain. Um, but I think we've done okay so far. Totally. Uh, yeah. Maybe you want to give like, uh, you know, a final sales pitch. Like, uh, mm. should people come visit you? Why should people drink the cider? What should they be drinking right now? Uh, and then we, we'll call it quits for the day. Okay, well, here is my elevator pitch then. Um, yeah, you should visit our farm. You know, it is the reason we make cider. You should see what we do, um, and you should, yeah, get to learn about why we do it. When you come to the tasting room, it's very likely that you're going to talk to me, you're going to talk to maybe my mom, who I have forced to work for me for free. Uh, <laughs> often, you know, one of the farmers is kicking around, my dad just likes to leer in the corner and, you know, say hilarious dad jokes. Um, but yeah, and you should try our stuff because what we are doing is like we're trying to steal from the natural sparkling wine world and uh, impose that upon cider, uh, which is, yeah, something that we're having more and more fun with. We're learning more about as we get older as a company. We've released 13 different ciders this year which the more I think about, the more I regret a little bit. Um, <laughs> so much work. So much so work. So many bottling days. Yes. Uh, we're actually canning a rhubarb cider at the cidery today, uh, and I am not there. And then actually tomorrow we're doing another round of bottling. Um, thank goodness I have an amazing team that is back there doing all of that lovely work for me while I get to visit you. But yeah, it's a, it's a true expression of my family, and the space and the best part is is it's also delicious totally yeah. absolutely uh yeah you should definitely snag some here uh 
you know, I'll, I'll try and leave a link so you can find everything. Uh, so if you are interested in tasting the ciders, uh, you know, you can actually hunt them down here in Alberta. Um, or if you're our friends up in the Yukon, uh, you know, order some as well. We can, we can send some up to you. We'll make it happen. Ditto Saskatchewan. We, uh, we love sharing all the cider all the time. Uh, cool. Well, again, thank you so much. If anybody has any additional questions, you can reach me at Eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com, uh, or send us a message on Instagram. We're just at juiceimports. Uh, we love hearing from you. So hopefully we'll all get to drink wine together again soon. Uh, have a good rest of your day.